Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today. All right, we are back in full effect in the Detroit is Different podcast studios. I am up and going and rolling with new content and new things coming in what we doing over here in the studio. So today I have a special guest, somebody that definitely adds to the tapestry of culture in Detroit. As we know, Detroit is Different is a lot about culture, a lot about community, and really just, you know, giving a voice to some stories that I think are interesting as we learn people's Detroit stories and their origins. So today is is a comedian, comedian as they say, uh, but somebody on the mic and also an entrepreneur, also a person that is an author, just all around person that does a lot of things when we think about what culture is. And if you have the chance to go to 90s on any Monday night, you're going to see something that's very uh, funny uh, creative, eclectic, and possibly maybe a little bit crazy too. But at the same time, it's going to be a fun night. So T-Barb is the person behind that and so much more. T-Barb, how you doing today? What up, though? What up, though? And thank you for having me on Detroit is Different. I okay. appreciate that amazing introduction. Thank you. I, you know, I feel honored to be Hilarious. sitting in this chair so <laughs> thank you so much i appreciate that all right cool cool so we're gonna kick this off like we usually do uh with the classic detroit story um your people uh what brought you and your family to the city of detroit um well i was born and raised in detroit okay. um my mother was also born and raised in detroit by way of alabama okay. um my grandmother and my grandfather they migrated from Alabama because of the cars. My grandfather went to work at the plant okay. and my which, grandmother came with him. Well, let's stop. What plant? You I think Ford. It was Ford. It was okay, Ford. Like, you know, he Ford. older. So you got to say Ford Motor Company. You can't just say <laughs> Ford. For older people got to say the whole thing okay. Ford Motor Company. But okay. what's so unfortunate in that story is that once we got here, my grandmother had so many kids. She actually was put into Northfield Mental Health Institution. Mm. And my mother went to foster care. Mm. So she was there from the time my mother was two until the time she died. So I've never seen my grandmother outside of a mental health institution. Wow, that's deep. That's deep. Mm -hmm. um, this kind of goes back to like even picking up that story. And that has to be unique. Uh, more so uh, Alabama. Whereabouts in Alabama? Uh, well, little town. Okay. <laughs> a little town. Do you remember the name? No, not it's it's an obituary somewhere, but okay. it's a little. And don't get me wrong, one of my aunts, she did the whole little this before twenty four and me and all that. Mm -hmm. She did a genealogy for us, kind of mm -hmm. detailing even what plantation my family came from. But it's a like. My family history is so unique. Some of it I've had to sort out because my parents were raised in such turmoil. Mm -hmm. So imagine my mother. They never lost their parental rights at that time. That's how I ended up becoming a foster care worker. But we'll talk about that later. Um, my mother wasn't able to get all that accurate history because my mm -hmm. grandmother was in a mental health um, institution and they were all separated. So my mother went on a quest throughout her life to find her brothers and sisters. A couple of my uncles were older. One of my uncles was old enough. He went to the army. My other aunt, you know, back then you can get married at 16, 17. So mm -hmm. she got married and kind of. That was her way out. But mm. my mother went to find um, all of the other siblings, um, you know, after that. So it was a lot about our family history, whereas traditionally your grandmother could tell you, okay, we came from here. We did this. Whereas with myself, I don't have that compiled history. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like even on my father's side, I never met my grandparents. Mm. Um, but... I have a great aunt who lives in Chicago who was raised by my great-grandparents who are Butterbeans and Susie, um, some vaudeville comedians that discovered Moms Mabley and things like that. All and right, she, wait, 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 mm -hmm. wait. All right, so for people listening, if you don't know what vaudeville is, so like uh, vaudeville is what we would think about, like a combination of like improv, comedy, and theater. And mm -hmm. it was a very popular form of entertainment and 
the turn of the 19 like 1900s and even the 1800s so like a lot of acts that we think of uh louis armstrong mm-hmm. uh sammy davis jr james brown uh, moms Mabley, yeah james brown all got their start into vaudeville and like most people would know it like and like you get the hook a lot of the stuff that like we know as apollo Kind of came from the concept of what they Ball opened Bill up for James Brown was. at the Apollo, yeah, and they discovered Moms Mabley. Uh, okay, so Moms be, uh, kicking mm-hmm. it with Moms, and then uh, I, I think a lot of people are more familiar with uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the mm-hmm. uh, the, and that was like a movie, but it also was yeah. kind of theaterish. So you could kind of think of those types of acts where it would be singing, dance, and oftentimes even a lot of blackface would be involved in some of the vaudeville Minstrel shows. shows. Exactly. Yeah. So it was a different term of like, uh, you know, just hitting the road, being an entertainer, and just really learning how to, like, I guess, engage. So you It was have, that chitlin circuit. Yeah. You have ties to, to that. So that was your... That was great. Like, who who is that connected to? So it is, it's crazy. Those are my great-grandparents. Your great-grandparents. So, so what okay. happened was, Mom's oh, this side, is on my father's so. side. Oh, on your dad's side. On my father's side. side. Okay. On my mother's side, that's a history that we had to piece together because, mm-hmm. remember, my, my maternal grandmother went to the mental health hospital. Yeah. She was on, you know, I've only seen her there. That's mm-hmm. the We would go every weekend, I only seen her there. On my father's side, my grandmother and grand, all of them had already passed away. Hmm. But I have an aunt by the name of Vimatiz Jackson. They were separated. So my grandmother, my aunt and my aunt Chartel, still living, and my father, rest his soul, were raised in Detroit. My aunt TC was raised in Chicago. So she separated her kids so the burden would yeah. be, I guess, mm-hmm. all on yeah. one, her mother. Um, and so my aunt TC was raised by Butterbeans and Susie in wow. their home. Wow. And once I became, I never even knew anything about them. She would talk about them, but not a lot. Once I became a comedian, she made me several binders with all of their history. She found their CDs. She, she's been keeping newspaper clippings since she was a kid. Mm-hmm. And she put it all in a binder and combined it to me and gave me the history. So this this is deep, just on the strength of like that form of I mean, being a black entertainer and celebrity performer has always been difficult in America. Mm-hmm. But then it was definitely difficult. Like, what were they facing? What stories did you hear? Because I mean, this is like at a time where you know. It was bad. So my aunt you know, she was raised pretty much almost like celebrity lifestyle. She felt like because they always had money, they were always on the road. They had a housekeeper slash person who would keep her. Mm-hmm. She rolled me past the house that they stayed in, um, mm-hmm. which was like a I cannot think of the name of the neighborhood, but it was like a prominent black neighborhood in Chicago. Mm-hmm. This on the way back up. So she showed me the house that she was raised in. Um, she remember James. They opened up for James Brown at the Apollo. That was a mm-hmm. big thing. She even called the Apollo trying to get that, but she couldn't find it. But she remembers they took her with. I mean, she went with them. Mm-hmm. They had to sneak through back doors a lot. She remember um, Stephen Fetcher. Uh, yeah, yeah. You step, know, as people know, they, like the whole concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stephen. Well, they Fetcher, stood behind Fetcher, him. Yeah. He would spend a night. Once mm-hmm. everybody turned their back on him. Butterbeans and Susie, they were still his friends. They still mm. let him in. She remember Mom's Mabley coming mm. because they got married when they were 14 years old, mm. Butterbeans and Susie. Mm. And they became, they sung, they became an act together. So I found a lot of inspiration in that. And I thought it was so amazing because even though I didn't know nothing about them, when I became a comedian, I was not a fan of comedy. Mm-hmm. And when I say not a fan, that don't mean I didn't like comedy. But I didn't study comedy. I didn't watch comedy shows. It wasn't like mm-hmm. my thing. You know, like it just kind of came to me. So I, I did. I found that to be very interesting that that was in my lineage and I wasn't even aware of it. And this is uh, so dynamic. And, and I always like to tie these Detroit stories and like what, you know, ties, especially when we think about Alabama, because Alabama is one of those states where mm-hmm. it's a lot of Detroiters that come from Alabama so it's unique that you know somebody from Alabama will go to Chicago because Chicago is usually you know a lot no, of that no, great that's market. two different sides yeah okay Alabama came to Detroit okay okay so on my father's side this is a this is kind of a little interesting too mm-hmm. 
Butterbees and Susie. I don't know how they got to Chicago, but I know that they were already there, born and raised. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't have the history as far. And of that's something I they, have to ask TC. The roots of where they Right, my auntie TC. Because yeah. my aunt, she comes here often. Mm-hmm. And um, it's crazy because she was raised in Chicago and my dad was raised in Detroit. They were mm-hmm. close, but I didn't even really have a strong, strong relationship with her until my father passed. Mm-hmm. Once my father passed, um, I think it's been... 11 years now hmm. me and her got super tight she has been de- to detroit more times than i can hmm. count since that encounter and so i've been gathering more the historical info. basis as i go you know from her as far as do you know what i mean as far as just learning what, what happened and the reason i say that is because you know a lot of the great migration it, it was the train line so like in Chicago, like people like Muddy Waters, so a lot of those people. So we think of like Mississippi, Arkansas, maybe some Texas. Those black folks went to like Chicago. Yeah. But people in Alabama, you know, they it's a lot of Detroiters from like Alabama, a lot from Georgia, because the, the bus line, you know, the train lines, the train tracks led us right up this way. And then if you go further east, you'll find a lot of families mm-hmm. like from Florida and the Carolinas, like in you know, in New York and places like that. And you'll be like, man, where do these black folks come from? So <laughs> it's unique uh, even when like uh, when we think of crops. And that's why I always like to start yeah. with the roots of of what that was like. So your childhood, uh, what neighborhood did you grow up from? I'm from Joy Road. Joy Road. OK, yeah. now when people say Joy Road, it's really big. But people immediately think <laughs> Exit 9. I'm not uh, from KBZ. Exit 9. I'm not what? from Exit 9, but I am from Joy Road. OK, whereabouts? I am from Joy Road in Wyoming. I'm from 482. which of course we all know that the fbi labeled that the second most dangerous zip code in the country at one point in time 4205 was first 4204 then it went to other cities but it was a point in time when 4204 was judged as the most dangerous zip code in the united states i think of i think of that intersection of joy road and wyoming and we're thinking uh, Mr. Flossalot's car wash. We're thinking, what else is over there? Judge Mathis. Yeah, his Judge family Mathis. lived on like American mm-hmm. and Joy. So I'm from actually Indiana and Joy Road. So mm-hmm. that's the street that I grew up on. Um, my mother moved over there when I was one years old, and we didn't move till I was 21. And and we obviously think Mackenzie. The staff. I went to I went to Mackenzie as mm-hmm. well. I went I went to Finney for a year on the east side. Then I went to Mackenzie. Okay. Okay. That's those are two complete. That's like uh, almost like a, a world away. What? Do well, you know? My life has always been like that. It's mm-hmm. been a, um, as they would say, a double entendre, if, if that's mm-hmm. what you want to categorize it as. So that's why, depending on what day and time, it'll probably depend on what version of me that you get, because it's, it's been a very stark contrast as far as some mm-hmm. of some of my upbringing and some of the lifestyle even that I live right now. Okay. So your parents, what were what were your parents into? Uh, well, what? my parents met fresh out of prison. Mm. So my parents met in a prison vocational program. A prison vocational yes, program. Yes, a mechanical program. My mm. mother had just did like, I think like six or seven years for armed robbery. And my father had just did like seven or eight years for, um, uh, was, it, was it attempted murder? But it was something that they downgraded it to something involuntary whatever so they both met in a prison program they really didn't know each other um they was having sex my mother got pregnant uh, my mother didn't think she could get pregnant my father wasn't sure if he could have kids this is um, my father was extremely transparent and i, I grew up <laughs> with them arguing all the time because they didn't know each other for real um and then they got pregnant Mm -hmm. Um, my parents, they suffered from addiction. They had their own addiction issues. Mm -hmm. Um, my mother had some mental health issues as a result of being in prison. That was her second bid, as -hmm. well as being raised in foster care and being abused the whole time she was raised in foster care. So, Mm -hmm. um, it was a different type of story. Um, my father says he only stuck around because he was a good person. He didn't think I was going to be his kid, but just in case I was, Mm. And then when I came out, he said, everybody said, because everybody said I look just like my father. Mm-hmm. That's your daughter. That's it. 
the craziest part about it, because like I said, it's so many layers. Like somebody said, you need to write another book. I'm like, I already wrote one, but I probably got about five more in me. Mm-hmm. Um, the craziest part is that legally my father was never my father. My mother didn't want to run the risk of my father taking me from her. So legally, she was still married at the time. My, well, they from the old school. They never got a divorce. They just mm-hmm. didn't see each other for 30 years, and yeah. that was fine with them. Yeah. So legally, I so my last name shouldn't even be my last name. Legally, I'm his daughter. Mm-hmm. But my dad was always around. He spent a lot of time with me. He helped raise me. He was more of an intellectual. He was more of the drug dealer, and my mother was more of the drug user. If that makes sense, even though they both dabbled. And we're and we're in a we're in like the same age range, mm-hmm. and that's one thing that. Uh, and I'm guessing, um, crack cocaine was was big. So I'm, I'm just my parents were heroin there, addicts, but they were actually on heroin, right? And this is why I spoke a, a little bit about crack as opposed to heroin during our era and what we saw with drug dealing because crack impacted even that trade big time, like in, mm-hmm. in, in how things get, you know, move. So, so heroin speak- addicts way better than crackheads. And I'm not just saying that because that's why I was raised by the only reason I say that is because mm-hmm. I, so I've been raised by all drug addicts. If, if mm-hmm. anybody knows anything about that type of world, but crackheads, where I'm from on Joy Road, crackheads will do anything. They selling the kids. They don't care. Whereas my parents, we had lights and gas. We might not have had a phone all the time. We had certain foods. It was they took better care of us and of themselves. They didn't need as much. So for people who not that well versed with it, a lot of people do OD and different stuff. But heroin addicts only need what they need not to be sick. And a crackhead you, always chasing being high. And and that is one of the key differences that mm-hmm. you spoke about. Hence, like, even in the movie American Gangster, mm-hmm. where Denzel Washington plays, uh, I forget the guy's name. Uh, but, you know, or, or like the Godfather of Harlem. But, like, mm-hmm. it, Denzel Washington, like, branded his heroin. Hence, you can brand heroin. Mm-hmm. Meaning, like, you know, like, uh, for instance, a lot of heroin users will like almost like go specifically to one person. Mm-hmm. Whereas a person usually getting high with crack. Who got some like, crack? Who can know, get here first? I have to wake up. <laughs> you know, like it yeah. changed. And that's why I say like during our during our maturation, because heroin mm-hmm. was very prevalent in I, I mean, we're talking about the the seventies, the sixties, the forties. Mm-hmm. Like it was very prevalent throughout many throughout the black community and other communities, uh, period, as a depressant. And, and closer even to alcohol, uh, of the cut of what people say and psychologically I've never and done. See, it. my father did went to Vietnam. Yeah. And they gave it to them there. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say he was a little different. Mm-hmm. It really took me being an adult to even understand that he was messing with it, too, because yeah. he was so like my father was a business owner. Um, he owned a beauty and well, he was a partial owner of a beauty and barber supply hmm. um, in southwest Detroit. They had a salon where where uh, whereabouts on Visker. Okay. It was on Visker. Um, BC's Beauty and Barber Supply. Shout out to my guy, Daddy BC. I'm still cutting my grass. Can't stop working. Um, they had it together. But my father lost his kidneys when I was nine. He wow. lost both of them. So mm. that kind of changed. That changed the trajectory of of that. And then also, as we're seeing uh, such the, the prevalence of when people say the opioid crisis, opioids, so people know, like, heroin is from opium. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's... It's in the derivative, even right now where, where people talk about fentanyl, like it, it's in the same family mm-hmm. of these depressants that can deal with pain to the point where like uh, one of the people I know that said like they they've had fentanyl. It's like, you know, it almost sounds like an advertisement, but like all that pain can be restructured in your <laughs> mind to yeah. be like, OK, now I can deal with this more. Mm-hmm. The, the tragic part of it, like what you say, is like you it, it becomes such a dependency possibly mm-hmm. that. Almost to function, hence like the the methadone clinic. Well, that's that's the thing. Like that. I was just finna bring that up because it's so crazy. When I was younger, we would go to it was a methadone clinic on Seven Mile between Southfield and Evergreen, mm-hmm. right next to the gas station across from that field where they're building. So that was a methadone clinic, and they call them counselors. Well, they are yeah. counselors. They substance abuse counselors. But when you a kid, 
you're not thinking like that. And I could remember peeing in the cup all the time. And one time, I'll never forget, my mother was arguing with them because it came back as pregnant. I might have been eight or nine. She like, she peed in the cup. So it was no way, you know, like that type of thing. But they would get the methadone and they would sell it. You know, people yeah. bought methadone, but that's why I say the American government, like people can trust it if they want. But the fact that they put you on another drug that you can never get off of methadone is just like heroin, but it's legal. It, and it's something so. you need. It's mm-hmm. not like they're weaning you off. You will be on methadone forever like you will be on heroin forever. And and, and so people have an understanding of and some of this is I, I'm piecing together mm-hmm. through the stories of history that I know from my family, from what I read and what I see. So it, it's you have these waves of heroin, especially connected to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the soldiers are, are struggling, right? Just dealing with, I mean, being 18, being drafted, you don't know how to deal with this death, and then you can take something that can help you cope mm-hmm. and even just go to sleep. Mm-hmm. So some of it may start there. That transitions into like we say to some of the methadone is so many people come back and i mean even like uh president uh, president nixon like mm-hmm. greenlit methadone clinics throughout like most black communities like mm-hmm. so like the bronx had many uh detroit chicago st louis east st louis you know like it's prevalent and now you also have this wave of what becomes disco and like this mm-hmm. party culture and this whole concept of what cocaine was and hence the idea of what crack became alluring because it's like cocaine costs so much but it's like okay wow now i can afford cocaine let me start mm-hmm. smoking this hence this whole new concept of what crack became i mean we know that that was that was a man-made thing but mm-hmm. you know that's a whole historical yeah. reference when you go back to reagan being the first president that allowed someone to buy a presidency or the first president that really used marketing techniques just like uh hitler had used hitler was the first dictator the first world leader to use propaganda video and yeah. so reagan kind of picked up on that and that's where you get the roger stone but like i said that's a whole nother yeah, issue yeah, I mean, it, it goes deep but i mean even a lot of what hitler learned to in segregation and all that stuff came straight from jim crow straight from the ku klux klan like i mean he was one of the biggest fans of everything everything american like i mean yeah. his studying went deep but i mean to unpack it just to see how it impacts our communities that something as natural as that and then mm-hmm. even through this um a child's viewpoint of this in in the in the normalizing of things that we now see as like okay this is something that a kid just right. should not see what was your state of mind in this brothers and sisters cousins i'm going to say i'm going to say this i think that you so I can speak on that at, from a CPS standpoint because, of course, I became a C. It's so crazy. Sometimes I think if I wasn't me, I would probably think this lady is lying. There's mm. no way <laughs> that all of this has happened or she's lived this life, but it's just all true. So from a kid's standpoint, living in that environment, you don't know it's wrong because it's normal to you. Yeah. This is normal. Mm-hmm. So and, and I didn't have the type of parent that would shoot up in my face. They would have parties. They would drink. For a long time, I just was in denial. It was better for me to say my mother was an alcoholic than a drug addict. So I was like, she alcoholic. But, because she used to drink a lot too. Um, But it was just, it was normal. Like, I cannot look back as a little, especially, I want to say nine and under. When I turned about nine or ten, that's when things started to change a little bit. When I was a little kid, I didn't, I was happy. I didn't know what was going on. My father had me playing the trumpet. I played the trumpet for seven years. I was in African dance class. I mean, like, mm. you know, he was getting money, plenty of money. I could remember a lot of white rock band type of guys coming to our house all the time or him going to some concert for some white guys. Like, white guys was always at our house mm. playing guitar, you know, all this kind of stuff. My mother was dating a professional kickboxer who played the guitar too. Like it was just a rock star kind of lifestyle. But I went to school every day. My hair was calm. I mean, it wasn't, I didn't miss no meals. Like it was all good. Well, my father lost his kidneys. That changed things. And then it got to a point where my baby brother was taken from us. And my mother, she was handling, coping it very well. But when my brother was taken from us, that's when I seen more of a, uh, a, a, 
downward spiral and I felt like things started to change a little bit and I started to notice. So by the time I was a teenager, I was noticing, but that's when I kind of started doing what I wanted to do. First off, my father was my father really my father was a very intellectual guy. So like even when it comes to the Bible, I look at the Bible scholastically because that's the way I was raised to look at it. We listen to a lot of talk radio like now. I find myself being my parents because I listen to WDET all day, NPR. I mean, I just, just what my son listened to it. We listen to I don't listen to FM 98. Shout out to FM 98. Not like that. I love y'all. But when I'm in the car, either I probably listen to trap music or I probably listen to talk radio or just the inquisitive nature of always reading something. Like, my father was extremely scholastic. I guess being in prison, he read a lot of books. My mother, too. Um... So when I started to see the downward star, I kind of took advantage of it. You know, I started smoking. I started, I think the first time I smoked weed, I was 11. Mm -hmm. So I started smoking every day when I was 13. So I started smoking, drinking, hanging out. I just was taking advantage of it. And then, like you say, crack was huge and on Joy Road. It was huge. So we going with all the crack dealers. And then we had older crackheads in our neighborhood that if you ask me to this day, and, and this has been a problem with people I grew up with. They don't like when I say this. They sold us. They sold us. So, like people say, R. Kelly, this and that. We was being sold at the data volume of trafficking at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. We were being groomed to be with these grown men and to get money from them and to get marijuana from them and to smoke and drink. Because as long as those crackheads could keep us in their house where we could do whatever, because we can't do whatever at home. Even though my mama doing this, I still can't bring no grown man in there. And, you know, but I can go. My mother, she has, she don't know why I'm at. I've been gone for 10 hours. I can go down here and smoke cigarettes, smoke weed, and you're going to feed it to me because, you know, as long as I'm there, they're going to give you what you want so you can get half for free on my dime. Mm -hmm. So those those were kind of the experiences I had growing up, fighting, a lot of fighting, um, a lot of smoking weed, a lot of cigarettes, a lot of, dr I mean, I've been going to the bar since I was about 12 years old, so. That was just our everyday life. And and in this, you're still going to school throughout this. I'm still I'm the only one going to school. So everybody else friend, dropped out. So you get you get your backpack and they looking at you like, we ain't doing that square stuff. But oh, we've been up all night. We've been up all night. We've been rapping, eating hot Cheetos, two, three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. I might have laid down for a minute. They gonna drop me off at school. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to go to only the classes I need to go to to pass And then I'm going to skip the rest of the day Or I'm going to leave or I'm going to call somebody to come pick me up Or whatever and, and what's so unique about all of this story is like you say Because things can be so normalized uh, If you go mm -hmm. back to my interview with uh, Von Arrington And Von uh, with his time that he spent in jail And just talking about his childhood Like you know a lot of things can we can normalize a lot of things and then in that comfort, because that's what I think also builds up too. when you normalize things that could be destructive to you. You know, like food can definitely be one of those things, mm -hmm. like a person that's like 400 pounds and it's like, yo, you keep eating this, it's going to kill you. But it's like, I'm comfortable with this. It's right. good. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I got to keep my 600 KFC. pound life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like it's a comfort and even what's destructive. So it's a unique relationship sometimes and also what is seen and what's what's not seen. So at that point in time, those teachers that were interacting with you, the classes, uh, even when you turned on TV, you know what I'm saying? You, you have a point of reference for watching, you know, uh, the Cosby show mm -hmm. or the Fresh Prince or Family Matters. Like at what point are you like, OK, some of this just don't seem that normal like did it ever even hit you <laughs> yeah, as a kid yeah of course I, i'm gonna say this i'm gonna say this it's crazy because it's like you said um even in my book the faith over fear tales of retired hood rat i always say you grow in uncomfortable situations and i've had to be comfortable with being uncomfortable so many times mm. just because I, like okay so it's a couple things that i feel like really impacted me first off my sister is 16 years older than me Mm -hmm. um, my sister don't really and she like you always mentioned to me. I think she was a savior. She never wanted to be a mother to me, but she was still a big role model. Um, she got with my brother in law I was four years old. They still together. Now I got four nephews. None of them ever been to prison. None of them ever been locked up. They all graduated high school, went on to do their thing. 
And that's for black men we talking about in the same household. So she was a big influence. But my sister was still one of those. She was a mama's girl. So my mother had been in and out of prison. She watched my mother get dragged out the house and she didn't have to stay here. So that was a big improvement to her that my mother never went back to prison after I was born. Jail, maybe uh, the mental health hospital, maybe, but not to prison. Mm -hmm. So. I didn't get drug out the house. So me and my sister had different experiences. My sister would stay over here with them, stay over there with them. You know, that kind of thing. Whereas I didn't have that. So she really allowed my mother, you know, she, she, she garnered me. She watched me every weekend. She had me, but she wasn't necessarily trying to be my mother. But like, she could have took me and been like, you're going to live here. She knew that my mother, despite what my mother needed me, to continue yeah. to not go so far deep because down the rabbit hole with your with your brother, it was already. Oh, uh, my so brother, tough. yeah. I mean, I, I watched my mother get her ass your, kicked, and my brother snatched right out my mother's hand. I never seen my brother again until he was sixteen years old. Yeah, my um, you know, we we think this likens almost in the Malcolm mm -hmm. X movie, you know, mm -hmm. and, and what happened with Malcolm X's mother uh, after the murder of his father, and, and then. Uh, the state stepping in and taking the children, which can be some of the most, I witnessed that, you know, on my own block. And it's, it's such a, it's such a, it's almost surreal. Cause you see, uh, you see a, a child protective services officer. Well, you know, I used to do that with, for years. Come with the police, the police officers. Mm -hmm. And then you see a kid and then you see like, sometimes the brothers and sisters stay. And then a mother just like hysterical mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, and you're, you're witnessing this as a neighbor, and it's like, damn, I don't even know how to interview. I, li I lived that lifestyle. I was a CPS worker for seven years, and then I was a foster care worker for three and a half. And then I went to do adult protective service for a couple years before I left the state. Um, so it's, it's a couple things. It's a, it's a couple things. Um, as far as, like I said, my sister was a big influence. And then I also went to this program at Cranbrook called Horizons Upward Bound. Okay. okay? It was a fluke how I went there. That's a whole nother story. That's something I've been working on some material to bring this to stage because I don't really talk about my life that much on stage. I talk about a lot of general stuff that's happened to me, mm -hmm. but not connecting these stories. Like I didn't when I first started driving, I never drove a car with a key. I only started cars up with screwdrivers mm -hmm. because that's how my mother would rip the ignition out if she couldn't find the keys and just start the car with screwdriver or my boyfriend was a car thief and we would be just driving around these stolen cars so for a long time i just thought that cars you need a screwdriver you don't really need a key and it seems it seems like ridiculous but it's the yeah. truth because that's how we was driving so and that's how i learned how to drive I, the first time i drove a car and it started with a key i started with a screwdriver flathead mm -hmm. screwdriver but um just when I went to this program, and like I said, it's a funny story how I got there because my mother took, I was at Ann Arbor Trail where my daddy had put me. My mother got into it with the teacher, called her all type of bitches, and then she put me in a school called Drew, Drew Middle School. Yeah. And then I ended up going to Drew. My father was sick, never knew I went to Drew to the graduation. My mother and my father had a fight in the hallway at Drew because when my father found out you weren't going to Ann Arbor Trail that anymore. I was going, because my mother told me not to tell him, and yeah. I just didn't. And But... Me going to Drew allowed me to go to Cranbrook because the Horizons Over Bound program was for the worst of the worst schools or what they considered the worst of the worst schools. And they recruited these kids. And we went there all summer and every Saturday. So I might have missed one summer. One summer I was off the chain and I just missed it. But all the other summers I went and it was such a different world. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it. On top of that, my mother was like the black sheep, but my family is amazing. I cannot even stress that enough. Like, for them to be raised in foster care, some of them, when I say I don't know what kind of blood running through these veins, amazing. My cousin is my dentist. She married to a lawyer. My other cousin is a partner at her law firm. Her husband is the director of diversity for some bank. Both of my cousins go to real Cranbrook. Well, my cousin was paying $25,000 a year mm -hmm. per student. Uh, my other cousin is a teacher. Everybody in my family married except for me. I can count my cousins as mar not married. My one cousin is not married. Is a biochemical engineer and her boyfriend. They just say, you know, they just want to buck the society. They both biochemical engineers. My, my uncle is a broadcast engineer and an architect. 
this is all through being raised in foster care. You know what I'm saying? My auntie got her own business. PC Tutors on Six Mile. Go see my auntie if you need your stuff fixed. So I'm talking about these is my my cousins, military wives, been all over the country. Um, all everybody in my family is amazing. I they most of them have their own businesses. It's crazy to me. Like it really is. Um, so it was some of their influence because. Mind you, they wasn't raised like traditional brothers and sisters, so they close, but they maybe not as close as some that's yeah. raised in the same house, but they would still come get me, show me their life. When I went to Cranbrook, I don't know if anybody from Detroit has ever been there, mm-hmm. but it's probably one of the most beautiful places in Michigan, one of the most beautiful campuses in the country, beautiful garden, and the the way that they teach you to think is totally different. Yeah. It's a different style of learning that Cranbrook uh, offers to students. And I still think like that now. That's that's why people paying 25000 because when I was going to black, and I've always been smart. I've always been great at school. I don't have to go to school a lot mm-hmm. to be good at school. It just was natural for me. Um, but at Cranbrook, it taught me deductive reasoning. It really taught me how to think. The way that they teach these kids, like we teach our kids memorization, they teaching these kids how to think and develop their own thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it was crazy to me. Like we wouldn't sit in class, like all of the classes round table. You don't mm-hmm. just sit, like you yeah. sit and you're having a discussion. Um, they might say, y'all want to go outside and have class? We might go sit next to a beautiful garden and read a book and talk about what that book is. No right or wrong answer. What does it mean to you? <laughs> Type mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, so that, and I would, and I would tell all the, the kids their stories and to them, it would be unbelievable. The stuff that I did during the weekend and we would come back and it would be like story time in my room. When I went to college, it was like that too. I would sit in the middle and then all the girls, they would sit around and they would want to hear all my ghetto stories. Cause I done did all type of ghetto shit. I can, I can imagine. And, and with it, um, college. What? What? What's college? Uh, I went to Dillard University. I am mm-hmm. an HBCU grad. Um, my undergraduate is from Dillard. My MBA is from University of Detroit Mercy. Okay. Uh, why did you go to Dillard? Um, you okay? So, couple things. This is real ghetto, right? I went to Dillard because of Master P and Cash Money. Okay. Because no limit in Cash Money <laughs> made New Orleans sound so ghetto. I had to be there because I was ghetto like that. So, so it's several reasons. So that was one. Because uh-huh. I was a big Cash Money and No Limit fan. Shout out to Master P and Birdman and Baby. I know they was beefing back then, but I was, I've been listening to Silk the Shocker and all that forever. So okay. um, that was my thing with that. Tank. Tank. <laughs> I, trust me, I listened to all the Mercedes, Mia X, all that. Mm-hmm. We was big fans. So they made New Orleans sound good. And then two, I was beefing in my neighborhood real bad. So I was beefing to the point where like, they tried to jump me in my prom dress, or mm. every time I seen a particular group, I would have to fight immediately. I don't give a damn what I was doing. If my mama was there, we would just have to fight immediately. Like, my mother, they tried to jump my mother. Mm. My mother was a fighter, though. She'd been fighting people in prison, so she'd mm. snatch they bat and be... Like, it was just on sight. So I feel like... I felt like if I didn't leave, I was gonna go to prison, I was gonna die, or something bad was gonna happen to me. And it... Out of all the schools I applied to, because I only had a 1.6 GPA, but I had a 26 on the ACT, Diller accepted me, and my homegirl was going to go to Xavier. She ended up going to Alabama State. Mm-hmm. I had never been to New Orleans. I had never been to Diller. And then I, I got a ride to Memphis. Shout out to BC again. And then from Memphis, I caught a Greyhound bus. And ah, then I caught a great beast. Great beast. And then I caught a cab mm. from the bus station to Dillard. I didn't even know if they was taking me to the right place. Wow. But I just knew that I was gonna try. I was I was gonna try my hardest to so make it out checking the situation. In and, and and this is and that's what's so unique, I think, about the HBCU experience for a lot of people because it's students from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. You have the highly affluent, like, damn, do do people really live like the mm-hmm. Huxtables? Yes. It's, Absolutely. It's that group. And then it's people such as yourself. Then it's people that come in from Africa. Then it's certain people that you got older students that, you know what I'm saying, that, that work maybe like 10, 12 years mm-hmm. in the workforce. And I was like, nah, I'm going to college full time now. Like, it presents such a... And that I didn't go to HBCU, but from witnessing Sorry it from you. other people, <laughs> I think 
it gives such a diverse view of what blackness is comparable to, you know, what you think, you know, as black people. But the HBCU experience is like, wow, it's a lot of different types yes, of black sir. people around here. I'm like, did you read the beginning of my book? <laughs> no, but no, that's how I felt. When I got, first of all, I was the only person there by myself. Let's just make that clear. I'm not saying everybody was there with their parent, but everybody has. I mean, it was to the point someone, where yeah. people were staring at me, like mm -hmm. waiting on my parent. Because you be in line for a long time. Yeah. And all I kept thinking, I can remember this very vividly, just thinking, I'm going to get to the front and they not going to have my name on this paper. And I'm going to be mm -hmm. stuck down here. Mm -hmm. Remember, everybody has cell phones and all that like that. Yeah. So when I got up there, they had my name. I didn't even know that you had to buy your own sheets. So I had one suitcase. I had a boom box. I walked at the time. I smoked a cigarette and weed like crazy. So I wanted to go smoke my cigarettes anyway. So I walked to like family dollar and bought some cheap sheets. I always, everybody always laugh. Shout out to my best friend, Kalita in LA. Um, Cause we ended up being roommates and, and been best friends for 21 years. Mm. She was from South Central. And you know, I can remember because I bought some cheap sheets with deers on them. Cause they was on sale. Cause I always been cheap like that. And she was like, she thought I was from Montana. <laughs> she was like, ooh, what black girl got deers on they on their sheets? So, like I said, we ended up being roommates. We just clicked. And um, it was just, it was different for me. But I knew that this was my way out. So that's why I tell people college is not the way for everybody. But at the time, I needed to experience those type of people. I needed to see... You know, I had a homegirl in Tennessee. They was filthy rich to me. Mm -hmm. You know, they had barbecue pit. They had this man. They bought me so much stuff. And I always say this. If, when I blow up, I'm definitely going to take her. her name is Katrice Pfizer. I will never forget what they did for me. And, and let me say this, too. Sometimes mm -hmm. in giving, as you know, and you've mm -hmm. given a lot, like... Yeah. Sometimes in giving, it's it's rewarding to give something to somebody that really will appreciate something versus a person that feels entitled or be like, you know, they don't care. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like, I mean, I've seen it even with my parents. Like, you know, your friend come over, spend the night or something, <laughs> and then, you know... You, your parents get like, oh, we're going to get some uh, extra pizza. And you're like, man, it's Friday. I didn't want Little Caesars. But this kid may never really get Little Caesars. So it's like, oh, man. Oh. You know what I'm saying? Like the, <laughs> the response like, oh. can get like a, a, you know, from a, a person really appreciating something. Only I think it's so fulfilling to the person that gives, too, because it's like, damn, that really, you know, this person really appreciated whatever that good look was. And I'll probably bounce back with whatever I gave Man, them, whether it's so money, money or a gift or whatever it may be. It's like, I, I can make this back up, mm -hmm. but it meant a whole lot to them. And I'll never forget it. You mm. know, they flew me to Nashville several times. Like, mm. I didn't have money to go nowhere for Thanksgiving. Mm. And her mother picked up on that. And she, she flew me to flew me to Nashville. We went to the Tennessee State homecoming game. They would go shopping. They was this type of people. So... People, parents would come down and her mother, you know, she only child mother really wanted to come down. And her mother was Mary, rest in peace to her stepfather, who was amazing man named Clark. Amazing man. Um, and if you in Nashville, go by Mary's barbecue pit. They still have uh, the barbecue joint. And um, I never forget. I was nervous because I didn't have any money. And we was her parents wanted us to stay at the hotel with them. And they had this. BMW 7 Series and she was driving it had a car phone in it that really worked and oh, her yes. mother was calling us on the car phone and where we at mm -hmm. and I felt bad because the first time we kicked in with her and then my homegirl come back late and I'm like she gonna think it was us you know so we stand so the next day they going shopping and I was a little embarrassed because I didn't have no money so but I'm yeah. like I'm gonna still go and play it off and they started giving us money Mm -hmm. So my best friend, Kalita, she started like, oh, T, they gave me 250 And she started giving me some of the money. And her mother saw and was like, no, that's what you get. And then I'm going to give her her own money. Mm -hmm. Everybody got the same. So if my homegirl, Shakisha, got 250 then I got 250 then Kalita, whoever was there. We went to Nashville. He gave us $500 the minute we got there. Everybody got $500. That's that's how they was. And they would notice that I wouldn't spend all the money. Mm -hmm. And her mother would say, well, I want you to spend it all. And I'd be like, well, this I, I want I got to keep this when I go back. Then they would leave us with money. That's mm -hmm. what they would do. Like it yeah. was just it was just amazing how 
how they how well they treated us and how much kindness that they showed to us you know and mm-hmm. it's, it's something i've never i mean i've had a lot of kindness but on that level the way that they did i can't even describe it that was something different they was just special people but that and and that's deep when you meet a person that like is mm-hmm. sincere like that um and is willing to support with whatever it may be. And it's funny, like, you know, I got my pictures rolling and I see this picture of Mel Far. That was one of my Oh, Mel Far. So, um, First he, one to make you blow to drive the car, I think. Well, that, that, <laughs> hey, I did not advise him on that, but he played some other game on me over time. Now, uh, we love Mel Um What did uh, college, what did you choose as your, as your course? What did you choose for, for school? What did you do? Um, well, initially, my first major in college was mass communications. Okay. And then my why father. Did you, uh, why did you even have an interest in that? Because I was going to be a news reporter. Okay. But I really, my childhood dream was always to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to be a lawyer. And I thought mass comm could kind of lead into that. Then my father talked me out of it. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up going with sociology and criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Criminal justice, of course, because I knew a lot about criminals. So I just figured it would be easy. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, oh, yeah. I would have did it like this. No, because I didn't realize it was going to be scholastic. I thought they was going to be asking me, like, how you break in? I was going to be like, yeah, go to the back door. Go you to know the what I'm saying? Door. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> All of that. So that was my that was my major. I did a dual major. Okay. And after college, what, what was the plan? After college, I wanted to be ghetto, and the street lords was out, and all my friends was calling me, like, you need to meet them. So I came to... Um, I came back home, mm-hmm. and it's so crazy because, and this is why I say, you got to pay attention to the universe all the time um, because I've always picked up on it. My homeboy, shout out to Robert Trailer, rest in peace, he ended up playing for the Hornets while I was living there. Mm-hmm. We are from the same neighborhood. They from Roseline. I'm from Indiana. Mm-hmm. So I got to go to all the NBA games, sit in the back. I went to all type of VIP parties I probably shouldn't have been at. Mm-hmm. Like he showed love I spent a lot of time at their house Shout out to Ray um, His widow I spent a lot of time with her um, But he had stopped playing So I came back to Detroit And for the first three months I just was being ghetto Thinking I was picking up on everything I missed out on mm-hmm. Which I didn't miss out on none Because they were still and, doing the same and thing And this is, this is what I'm wondering too Because with a college degree And then what you've seen in exposure mm-hmm. um, your, your social circle Even though like this, these my people like your people and your friends can still be your friends, but as your as our life's interests change, kind of our friends kind of ain't our friends because we ain't really rocking the same. Well, it it totally changed, and that has been, I think, an issue for some people I grew up with. They not really liking certain things right now which is fine with me because i just have to do what's best for me and that's something i'm still picking up on to this day because i've always because i was raised as a caregiver like my father lost his kidneys i've been going to the hospital i've been going to dialysis with him i've been wiping wounds ass wrapping shit all all my whole life because that was another reason i went to college i didn't feel like i was gonna make it here because I had two siblings. I was taking care of my father and it was just so much and still being ghetto in the street. And I was like, I have been a caretaker since I was a little girl on top of all the extra things that I was doing. So that's like I almost didn't graduate because my father had to go to jail for like two months and I kept and his my stepmother crazy, but let me keep my brother. And I was taking him to high school with me. Like I was running the whole house for two months. Mm. Nobody could tell me I'm on the east side paying all the bills, everything. Um, but so I've always been that care provider. And I knew I needed to get away to focus on me. That was the first time in my life I had ever done anything that I considered selfish, which may have been seemed normal to other people. To me, it was selfish because I was bred. To take care of something, how could and, I leave? And, but see, even with that, I would I would go as far as to say that part of that is the it's it's what you were comfortable with, it's what you yeah. were conditioned oh, to, it's yeah, what absolutely. you were socialized to, to even feel that doing something for yourself is a selfish. Act. It, was, it was selfish. Like even to this day, like I'm I'm not saying I can't be selfish. I'm not saying that, but I've always been very considerate of others, which has really put me in a bind a lot of times. And I'm just now learning that everybody's not me and that I have to start putting my interests first at times. So but that's a whole nother I conversation. Mean, in, in my arc of it, like I say, and I know people kind of pull back and they say, you would probably say something like that, but sometimes doing, okay. 
is selflessness, not selfishness. But I want you to do what you I really want people to excel at exactly what their passion is. Be as selfish as possible, but be selfless about it. Don't don't exploit other people. Don't look to oppress other people and take advantage of other people. But follow what your passion is, because nothing's worse than that person in that predicament like you, that person that feels, um, you know, like making people codependent. Yeah, you know, uh, and, and I do think that oftentimes, especially you know, uh, black women, uh, can almost get ingrained, you know, uh, into that. Like even at a young age, like it's so unique. Like you know, you look at a Thanksgiving dinner in a lot of our households and i know this is part of the culture mm -hmm. but like it'll be like a seven-year-old it'll be like yo come on help me clean the greens and, yeah. this and, that. <laughs> and then the boy be like go in the other room and watch football you know what i'm saying like it some of this is ingrained mm -hmm. like you know make his play do this do that and i'm not saying it's right i'm not saying it's wrong but it starts building where now even with the way that, you know, the girl plays with a doll and raises up the doll and and, and has the house as right. opposed to like, okay, um, the relationship of how she, you, the black woman sometimes I think may see herself is in relationship to how the relationships around her see mm -hmm. her as opposed to her even stepping forward like, wait, wait, wait. Forget my man. Forget my mom. Forget my brothers and sisters. Forget my cousins. Forget my friends. How do I see me? How do I see me? No, um, I mean, I totally, I totally agree with that. And and even when you were saying with the separation, because that's where the uncomfortable or the comfort part we talked about earlier. So, for instance, when I first came in, it was uncomfortable for me to be cool with them because I had always looked at them as all oh, they bougie. Or like when I came back home mm -hmm. for three months. I was my old self, but eventually I went and got a professional job. That was the first step in really, really, really me kind of becoming somebody different or separating because now I'm this professional and I sought out this job in foster care because of my mother. Mm -hmm. So my mother would stay up all night and talk to herself and relive everything that she went through and I would be the only one there to listen. So she would cry. She would go through everything. My mother would be in there like, no, no. And I would get up and run thinking something was going, but she would just be reliving yeah. these things All that happened traumas. to her. Yeah. Right. So I was like, whoa, I'm going to save the world. <laughs> Not like that, but mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? If I'm going to do anything, I'm going to go into foster care. So my mother's foster sister worked at an agency, and she gave the uh, director my resume and so they hired me. So then I was, you know, doing the foster care thing. And I did that for um, three and a half years. I actually assisted in starting a program called the Young Adult Self-Sufficiency Program, which Children's Center still use the model to this day. Mm -hmm. um, as far as I started working with the kids that were aging out, um, I really worked tirelessly. Well, let's, let's stop right there because jobs like that, they can be... Jobs like that, it, it, you know, it's like certain jobs that they say, like, you can take the work home, like almost like a police no, officer. No, it is. Like, uh, it's not you know, a job for money. It's a job it's, because you're doing something that, and, that you want to help. And you can see certain instances like the, the, the people I know that work in those types of fields where it's like they damn near need to, like, really break away and kind of detox because some of that stuff that you see from a child, it, it's like it's heartbreaking. Yes. And either you're going to continuously, and that's what's so crazy, either you're going to continuously have it with you all the time or you're going to forget about it. And um, I know a lot of people say, huh, what you mean? So when I first started, I didn't even have a kid at the time. I would spend so many hours with them. If I moved a kid, this one that everybody said, well, we know you knew. Because if I would move a kid, instead of just dropping them off high and dry, I would, like, be there cleaning up the room, putting the clothes up, taking them to McDonald's. You know, actually, it's so crazy because about three years ago, I ran into a family that I had. And the little boy was just weeping at Walgreens. He just, I didn't realize. He just said I made such an impact on his life, you wow. know, and that I was just working for a long time. Wow. So that was that. And um, so that's why I ended up working with the kids that was aging out. I returned a lot of kids home with their family. It's a lot of kids that that's didn't good. make it. Mm -hmm. Then I went over to protective services. Now that and was, I was going to say, but that it that's another one of those types of jobs. No, nah, that's where, worse like, than foster care. Take, you could take that home. I've seen kids 
I've seen kids kill themselves. I've seen brothers rape sisters. Mm. I've seen uncles rape nieces. I've seen triple homicides. I've been at scenes where the parents was dead and the kids sat up with the parents all night for two, three days. I've been to a lot of rape scenarios. You know, I've been interviewing kids where they were vomiting because somebody got them drunk and raped them all night. Um, I've seen it all. You know, like I said, I've seen kids kill themselves, hang themselves in the closet. I was the first one to respond to cut them down. Or I didn't cut them down, the police, but why they was cutting them down. Um, yeah, and, and, and seeing that, mm-hmm. even though your childhood was definitely, you saw, but it's still like to consistently, even in the arc of your childhood, like mm-hmm. what you said, your dad's your business, your mom, you know, still I- interacting with you, but to always, you, you know, to walk into stuff like that, how do you, how do you, how did you like get up and get back into that and be ready for something a day after something like mm, that? I mean... I think that that's why I think a lot of people probably drink because I mean at and at the time too, I was still going. Listen, I didn't been through it because I was still going through a lot of my own personal, you know, with my father getting his legs amputated and all mm-hmm. kind of stuff, all during that during that mm-hmm. period. Um, and I ended up taking my brother and sister and raising them after my father passed. All while I was still a CPS where it was just was a lot. What I chose to take from it was the positive things that I was doing, if that makes sense. So I may see this, I may see that. A majority of the cases that we get are not that. But I took pride in the amount of children that I allowed to stay home. That's big. And, and, and like, I might have went a year without filing a petition. Everybody was on me because that never happens. Well, you have a whole year. We get a case every day. So I'm investigating 30 cases, and then I close them all and don't take nobody's kid because – I understood the dynamics and I understood like even in my case, you might have popped up to my house on the wrong day and it might have been a taken situation. But would I have been better off being raised in care with the trauma that that causes or am I better with the trauma that I know, if that makes sense? Because we don't have the best foster homes. Foster parents don't get paid jack nothing. So people thinking they doing this with these kids. No, this something you have to be doing because you love them because you're going to end up coming out your pocket. And then so... It was a lot of situations where I would get up and be more fearful I was going to be at, on the news for not removing these kids wow. than actually the cases that I saw that were really bad. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I have had, I, I, it's, it's just crazy. It's crazy in, in the seven and a half years that I was there. Um, and I've had some, I've had kids that weren't people. And what I mean by that is they was born at home. They never been to school. They mm. never been nowhere outside their house. Wow. And they've been in their house. They 14 and 15 years old mm. type. Not little kids, like kids, like don't mm. really know. We can't verify if that's their date of birth because their mama had them on the floor and the friend was a nurse and, and they left them there. So it was just different, um, different scenarios for me a lot of a lot of different scenarios just a a lot of different things um but i take pride in the amount of families that i conserved the amount of lives that i touched and hopefully the amount of people um that i saved so moving into that how do you get into comedy okay so that's crazy because i know i gotta go in a minute um so with comedy Cause this could probably be a two week interview messing with me. Trust me, I'll be talking for three weeks because I got three weeks worth of stuff to talk about. But comedy, so I left CPS. So they took my boss. Uh, I had the same boss for seven years. Amazing lady. I don't know if I'm supposed to say her name, but her name was Kelly Lentz. I definitely want to give her a shout out because they tried to. They she ended up being on the news, and I it it pained me so much because I know this lady. I know her. I know her character. She was one of the most amazing bosses I have ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody left her staff. As hard as that job is, people really stayed because of her and her her management style. She was amazing. Um, and they ended up putting her on the news and, tr- and prosecuting her. Kim Worthy, they tried to prosecute her. Wow. And, um, and I thought that was too much. But anyway, they took her and put her in another position. So I transferred to Adult Protective Services. Mm-hmm. When I transferred to adult protector, which is like one of the gravy jobs at the state, they say, because trust me, they don't give a damn about adults. Not trying to be funny, but yeah, listen, th- it ain't even 
protective service. I come in the house. I got to describe this room. The carpet was this color. The wall was like this. It was seven mics. Blah, blah, blah. And adult, I'd be like, I went to the house. They wasn't there. The end. You know, like, it just was so different. But one children. of my coworkers. But it's also it's also kind of unique. I want to point this out, too. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, we often talk about Governor Engler being the person. But it's more than Governor Engler. I think it was like a national push. But at one point in time, you had more mental health facilities across the country for adults. So a lot of like what we see, like especially if you go to a city like, I don't know, last time listeners went to L.A., you'll see tent cities of all of these people that experience a homelessness that at one point in time may have just needed some support mentally, some support that that the state did. But a lot of mental health care facilities, as you said, like your grandmother was in one for, for a long period of time, that just don't exist nowadays. So a lot... Is just hey, you on your own, my G. Maybe a SSI check. Maybe. maybe. Well, with with adults, they just feel like the only thing we can do is if they're not lucid. Yeah. And they had a movie come out about that that I really appreciated because the court system doesn't really tap in the way that they should. Mm-hmm. You know, we in and out wake and bake cases. They really don't know. You know the the details of what's really going on with this family. But let me say this. Um, Adult Protective Services was a time, definitely one of the graviest jobs in the state. That's why everybody couldn't believe I left. But I had a co-worker by the name of Monique King. Shout out to you, Monique, who was a comedian. Mm-hmm. And she was like, yo, I had this bucket list. And I was like, yo, I want to try comedy because I've always been very silly. Mm-hmm. Both of my parents were very funny, believe it or not. My father was one of the... I, I think... If anybody smiled down on heaven on something that somebody is doing, if he in heaven, he might be in hell. Because he used to kick it like hell type kick. He probably wouldn't even want to be in heaven because he probably would be bored up there like straight up. Um, But if anybody is looking and is proud of their kids, probably my father. Because my father was the life of the party. Mm -hmm. He was the funniest, the funniest guy ever. Like Mm -hmm. ever, ever, ever. Like everybody was. I mean, all you would do is laugh. Everybody laughed all the time. And I think it was just something naturally that was passed down to me. It was a defense mechanism. It's just who I was. It was ingrained in me, like I say, mm-hmm. when I found out about my great-grandparents. And I would be acting a fool in the office. I'm probably the only protective service worker that would leave, leave in people's house. They would be laughing like, well, I'm here to talk about did somebody rape somebody? And now we laughing, you know. Mm-hmm. So she told me. And I was like, yo. Matter of fact, we went to one of her comedy shows. At the time, I, I was with a guy. We went to some comedy shows. I was going to throw him a comedy birthday party. Like, we had so mm-hmm. much fun. Because I had never really been to a comedy show. I'm like, I'm having so much fun. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, um, she was like, yo, you can come do comedy at this open mic. So, of course, I invited everybody I knew. Yeah. 30 people. Mm-hmm. Like, we always do when we knew the comedy. Everybody, their mama was there. I had dolphins there. had everybody there. Mm-hmm. And um, she told me to get three minutes prepared. What was so crazy was my banker's sister was a comedian as well. Mm-hmm. She told me, I'm going to tell my sister to come. Mm-hmm. Her sister came, but I was left already. Her sister invited me to another show. That's the first time I met Josh, too. Mm-hmm. It was Heather J. It was Josh. I met them, and then Heather invited, introduced me to Kool-Aid, my third time doing mm-hmm. comedy. And I've just been doing it ever since. So I did it one time. That was May of 2016. And I just I just been doing it ever since. And and this is something as, as you know, uh, I'm a fan of comedy. I know a lot of comedians. I've worked with many. Thank God they've been willing to work with me in Detroit. That's but Josh about. is definitely my homie. Shout and we Josh. talk about this often that comedians have something going on. Like they say, comedy the tortured soul, and, and like it's a, it's a place to just get those expressions of that pain out. Mm-hmm creatively mm-hmm. and, and and it's needed as we all laugh because even in the audience laughing at some of the pain it's it's unique you, you know, can like connect to it yeah yeah so uh with, with this expression like what was it that made you stick to this because uh, along with this pain that comedians have the journey of being a comedian is painful itself too. it is i love it i love it and i felt like it was um and i felt like it was it was just, it was what I was meant to do. Is People used to always tell me I miss my calling at my office all the time. I've heard this 
more times than I could think of. Mm-hmm. And at the and what's so crazy is before I wrap it up, because no, I want a minute. What's so crazy is this is the craziest part. Right before I started comedy, I got jumped. Mm. When I got jumped, it was by some friends of mine that jumped always as an adult. As an adult. That's a different type of jump. It is. A you guy some jumping stops at like, what no, would you say, 14, they, 15? They, yeah, no, I got jumped. Wow. Um, that's a whole nother story. And the people that I was hanging with at the time was very popular people, but they would always discourage it. They would say, you goofy, you silly, but you ain't no comedian. Oh, you just goofy. I got jumped, stopped being around them, started doing comedy, been encouraged ever since. It's just... I think that in life, we all have something that we're destined to do, like an ordained destiny. And I I feel like I found mine. I feel like that's why it's been easy. That's why the universe aligns so many pieces to line up for me and gives me so many great opportunities. On top of that, I've just always been a hard worker. Always been a fun person. Always been a hardworking person. Always been a... I think CPS and all the public speaking probably helped me as well because I've talked to all type of people on all type of spectrums of life. Mm-hmm. I think that my background, you know, having the MBA, all those different experiences, because my first, the first comedy show I really had was in Rome. And um, I had them crying, laughing for maybe like an hour, hour and a half. And I didn't even realize that was a comedy show. It took me reflecting back like, yo, I had a comedy show in Rome, like, and didn't even know. I threw a party and I just started talking. They laughed for hours. To this day, my professor, shout out to Professor Offers, Dr. Offers, I love you, was just like, yo, you just so funny. And um, the rest is history. All right. So as we get to a wrap, like I say, every Monday we can catch you at 90s, but you got other things coming up. Uh, also, we didn't even touch on entrepreneurship. We'll definitely get you back. <laughs> we got I got to come back. Um, but classic Detroit is different questions. Uh, first, uh, your very first car year making model. What year did you get it? It was my car. Or was it a base rental? Whatever you define okay. as your very um, first car. My first <laughs> first car that I owned that was mine was a Taurus. Mm-hmm. It probably was like a 94 Taurus. What year did you get it? Um, In 2004. Okay, so 10 on it. Yeah. All right, where's the first place you went with it? To the weed house. Okay, to, to cop. Yeah. All right. Uh, you are the DJ at the end of the fireworks. You get to play three songs. So now we we going quick. So you get to play one song. What song you playing at the end of the Detroit fireworks? Jefferson and what were? Who do you love by R. Kelly? I mean by LL Cool J. Lounging. I don't okay. know why I say R. Kelly. Okay. I meant LL. Sorry. Okay. You because everybody talking so much. I think right so. Now. It's in my mind. Exactly. So, um, and last question. If you could rename Woodward after one Detroiter, who would it be and why? After a Detroiter? Mm-hmm. Woodward. Mm, name it Aretha Franklin Boulevard. Okay. Because she that, you know, okay. this is Aretha. I'm with it. That is it. How do people get in contact with you? Uh, they want to get in contact with me. They can follow me on Instagram at IMTBarb. That's I-A-M-T. B-A-R-B. They can follow my fan page on Facebook, um, Comedian T-Barb. They can also follow my vegan cooking fan page, The Hood Rat Kitchen. And if you want to see my schedule, what I'm doing, you can always go to my website, which is www.tbarb. That's T, B as in boy, A-R, B as in boy, is funny.com. www.tbarbisfunny.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank y'all. Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store.